thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. Men didn't. It happens sometimes. I apologize for that, but I was thinking about that, and you know it's Valentine's Day. If you're, if you're a, a technically savvy person, there's this Groupon thing going on. You guys know Groupon? Groupon is like the Sunday paper clipper kind of thing on steroids. And if you have notifications for Groupon turned on on your smartphone or tablet or computer or whatever, you will get spammed with endless, endless things. But I just look from time to time, and at Valentine's Day, everything on Groupon is something like this. Hey guys, it's Valentine's Day. Buy this or you suck. Every ad is some degree of that. In Valentine's Day, it's the time when we spend lots of money trying to make sure we've taken care of things. And I looked up on the internet, I was actually just reading on the news, and the top places to celebrate Valentine's Day, the top five are San Francisco, New York City, Vegas, San Diego, California, Honolulu, Hawaii. I, like, you could celebrate Arbor Day in Honolulu. Does it really matter, right? You're in Honolulu. Like, what a dumb thing. Well, you can celebrate there, I guess. Like, like, that, like there's a bad day to be at the beach, right? I just thought those, and in Hialeah, Florida, I'm not even sure where that is, but it sounds nice, so that's fine. Those were our top five, or those were some of our places for Florida. Cleveland made the top 100 places to celebrate Valentine's Day. We were number 95, <laughs> followed by three cheers for Toledo, uh, <laughs> San Bernardino, I think there's a prison there, uh, I do. <laughs> Newark, which is kind of a prison, uh, Detroit, which is definitely a prison, <laughs> on the list as we go down. Cleveland didn't get the best romantic uh, rating for Valentine's Day. We spent an average of 161.96 at Valentine's Day as we seek to connect with other people. More people than ever online tried to find a connection for Valentine's Day because we want to find that quick connection. We want to find that redeem that quick coupon. And the thing about Groupon or things like that or Valentine's Day, if you, if you go too late to get a card, um, I have a, a guy I follow, a guy I know on Instagram, and he was a Navy SEAL, and he said on Instagram this week, he, had, he just took a picture at Walgreens, and it was all guys like this. Did I tell you guys this? It was all guys staring, and he said, I've never seen such concentration in my entire life anywhere I've ever been. And that's saying something, knowing this guy's life, you know? But if we mess stuff like that up, guys or girls, you feel like, oh, I didn't redeem that coupon on time. I didn't, I didn't take care of that. I, didn't, I, wasn't, oh, I wasn't on top of it. And you think to yourself, I'm an idiot. I'm my wor wor own worst enemy. I messed this whole thing up. It sounds funny, but it's not just Valentine's Day. Because in our whole life, we often mess things up because just like in Valentine's Day, people are online finding deals. They're online finding dates for Valentine's Day. We want everything to be simple. We want it to be just like five easy steps to get the perfect Valentine's present. Just buy this and this box shows up and you can't screw it up. Just do this and everything's going to be better. These five steps will fix your marriage, fix your life, fix your 401k, whatever it is, right? Everything we want, we want to be Perfect, because we know that we mess things up. We're our own worst enemy. In the book of Romans, we find a world a lot like ours. See, the Roman church, Rome being the center of the, of the empire, they had a pretty easy 
pretty easy life in some ways, a pretty hard life in others. As much as some things were convenient, other things were difficult. They weren't sure what to do, what to say, what to believe. Whatever they did, they felt like they were always stuck between a rock and a hard place. A lot of the people in the Roman church were even indentured servants, where in some ways they lived in the center of culture and art and commerce and all these things, but in other ways they felt like they were stuck because of the circumstances of their lives. That's a lot of how I think people feel today. We have all these opportunities, but we seem like we always mess them up. And we're always looking for quick ways to make everything better. Kind of like what people do at Valentine's Day. It's, it's weird, but we are reminded, no matter how much we get, of how much we lack. How we are our own worst enemies. So we're going to look today, Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12. And we're going to think about this idea in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 12 forward. This idea of hunger. Because in Valentine's Day and in all these expenditures, this idea of hunger comes into play. Whether you're top five or whether you're in the bottom 100 of, of things in life, it doesn't matter. This idea of hunger. And this idea has invaded the church. Pastor, don't give me all the Bible. In fact, you know, those sermons are long. Can't you just shut up and let us go to lunch? I, I, I understand, I do. I want you, I'm, not, I'm not picking on anybody. I understand, I love you guys. But why do we do this? Why are we going through the book of Romans like this? Because like the Roman church, we find those quick fixes don't work. If you want your best life now, there's a guy that'll let you watch church in your PJs. And if you send him money or buy his book, he's going to make everything okay. There's only one problem. Life doesn't work that way. Life in Christ doesn't work that way either because deep down in our sin and our brokenness, we're hungering for something more. That's why people spend the money on Valentine's Day. That's why people get so involved. We're hungering for something more. And at the end, whatever we get to fill that void, if it's not what we were made for, if it's not Jesus, then all the stuff around us, all the noise around us, all the struggle around us, it's not going to satisfy us. Because what we were made to have, what we were made to be satisfied in, what we really crave deep down, what we desperately are seeking in this broken world is Jesus. And we're going to look at how, just as the Romans experienced in their lives, where they were trapped in some ways and had so much in other ways, we're in the same boat as them. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. We talked about that last week. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many tra trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespasses death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. If you know there's a law, you know there's something wrong. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a lot going on in God's Word. There's a lot going on in this passage we're going to look at. And the passage from last week as well leads into this. So let's take a look here at this passage. God is a God of restoration He's a God of reconciliation. Now, what do we mean by that, and why is that important? Last week, I gave you a Bible study tip. When you see a therefore in the Bible, you got to stop and see what it's there for. And we have some more of those kind of building kind of examples, a a conversation, a, a point is being made, an argument that Paul is presenting here. He wants us to understand something. First, we saw in Romans, of course, that we were sinners, and that we can't get it right. And Paul wanted us to really understand, you know what, you're kind of worse off than you think you were. In chapters 3 and 4, he said, you're so bad off that you actually try to blame other people for your mess and justify it that way. At least I'm not as bad as as so-and-so. But what we learned even last week and what we've seen is God's standard is perfection because God is perfect and in fact... He created the whole world perfect. And we say that God's word is perfect. When people say, why do you Christians get so worried about the Bible? Because we believe that the Bible, as we used to learn in the catechism, as we've been talking about, it's the only rule we have for faith and life. If you want to know how to live, you can figure out all that you need in God's word. It doesn't mean it's exhaustive. It's not the, you know, Godpedia Britannica or something. It's not like everything gets added to it. But all the basic premise of how to fix what's messed up in the world is in the 66 books of Scripture. And more than that, in God coming, the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, we understand what God's about because God made the world perfect and we messed it up. Now, if you ever want to come to Fantastics, I mentioned a book this morning, the book Life in the Wild by Dan DeWitt. In, in Fantastics, we're doing Genesis chapter 3. That's the fall of mankind. Sin, death, darkness, destruction, Enter the world, and God comes to Adam and Eve after they choose sin. And think about it. When the world was made, I've mentioned this before, everything God required of us was on a post-it note. Don't eat that tree. It. Done. But life has become much more complex, much more difficult because of sin, because of brokenness. We experience this in our lives every day. Of our lives, how broken it is. But what I want you to see, and what Paul is saying, is God has one plan, the same plan to redeem and to restore the world around us. The world was perfect, but it's broken. It was holy and blameless. And God was there, a holy God, and He walked along with Adam and with Eve in the garden. You see, when God made Adam, He made Adam and then Eve was made as well after that. But God made humanity face to face, if you understand the idiom, the Hebrew there. God makes the rest of the animals, and he doesn't make us like them. We have a soul. People said, well, animals are really complex. 
Well, I'll tell you what. When bees and dolphins and elephants and other smart animals build space stations, we'll talk. What a dumb argument sometimes. Well, you know, dolphins have a very complex language. They do, and that's cool. But have they ever built a high-rise building and then sold advertising on the side of it? I don't think so. God made us different. We are made imago Dei in the image of God. We're creative. We have souls. We have decision-making built on principles, on values. And if we don't understand what God made us for in our sin, we screw it all up. And in the beginning, when it was perfect, when it was together, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in the garden. Right there. And sin broke all of that. And there's consequences for sin. There are consequences that come into the creation and it changes everything. And in the ancient Hebrew, there's a word there, tamotun, the word they have there when God says to them, because of this, you will no longer live. You will not be forever. I'm going to drive you out. There's going to be thorns and thistles and pain and all of these things. And he says to them, the wages of sin is death in Romans. And God says to them back in Genesis, and because of this, you will die. But tamatun, the word there in Hebrew that you see, actually means you will completely die. Or die, die. It's doubled. Why? Well, I thought about Valentine's Day and how we operate there. You know, we're not going to go out out on a date date. You know, I'm not going to, you know, really get a present present for that. Think about how we do that on Valentine's See, God knows how we think even then. On Valentine's Day, when people are worried about filling that hole in their heart, we double things. We're not going out out on a date date, and then we're not in love love. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? That's how we think. But what God tells us from the beginning is you're going to die, die because of sin. What does that mean? There, God is referring to the fullness of sin. You die physically, but sin also kills us spiritually. It is a holistic effect on the world. You're going to die. And what Paul says here is, look, sin and death, not physical death, but spiritual death, came into the world through one man. And before we even had God's word, before they got with Moses like we already have learned about to Exodus 20 and to Mount Sinai, before God said, look, you're my people and here's what I expect, sin and death were already present. They already understood it. And God said, don't worry, why I've called you out, why I've brought you out of physical slavery, you're my people, I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for you and it's a good plan, it's a plan to bless and to love you. We, from the beginning, were blessed and loved and called, and we're being reconciled. And the way God set it up in the book of Genesis, we call that the covenant of works. Remember, we heard about this idea of covenant theology. You see, God, God is a God of perfection. He's holiness. He is perfect, apart from all sin. That's who God is. He's holy. And even Jesus, when he comes... We did the Beatitudes. Remember we studied those? All these things about divorce and marriage and life and right and wrong and parents and the way we're to live in our world. And at the end of all that teaching that he does, he's out there, he's up on the mountainside, he looks at the people and he says, hey, okay, all of you, remember, therefore, you got to say, what's it? Therefore. He stops and says, all right, therefore, you must be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, do you think Jesus really thought they were going to be perfect. Is that what he meant? 
Jesus had been living on earth for a while. Did he already know that people there weren't perfect? Yeah, but they didn't understand what that meant. They didn't understand what that meant. Because the Pharisees said, look how close to perfect we are. We measure out the dill we put on our food. And Jesus said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Forget it. You're dead on the inside. Die, die. You're dead on the inside. No. And then he says to the Judaizers, Paul says to them in that time, God gives this ministry to the apostles and Paul says no just because you got circumcised or follow a bunch of rules you're you're gonna die die because you're gonna die on the inside you think that you're better than somebody else you're all dead in your sin and that's what Paul's been teaching us so what does it mean Paul here in this passage is explaining that while God's standard is perfection and we know none of us can achieve it Paul stops and he kind of gives us the backstory. This is like a Marvel movie. Paul's giving us the origin story of how this all works. And he draws us back into Genesis all the way to chapter 3 because he wants us to see that the covenant we're still under is that covenant of works where we need to be reconciled before God. And I've been talking with Wendy Joe as we're doing the New City Catechism. I've told you guys to get a hold of that, download it. The New City Catechism reminds us of this word reconciliation. And we're trying to figure out how this works. And this is a financial term. We've talked about this. Who can pay the debt that I owe because of my sin? It's funny in our country, the more we have to deal with debt, the more we deal with people shouldn't be responsible for it, even though it's their debt. Anybody else find that weird? I went with my son. He got a credit card recently, and he was getting a credit card, and he's getting ready to get uh, his first apartment because he's getting married this summer because God cruelly wants to punish me and make me not sleep and stress me out. But as my son gets ready to do all this, he calls me last night, and he's talking about how he has to sign on this, you know, to get there. They're looking at apartments to figure this out for after they get married and all this stuff. And he says, you know what? You really don't know what people are going to think about you until they check you out and decide whether you can even live in something that you're going to pay the money to live in. I said, welcome to adult life. You guys know what I mean, right? And there's always that sense of, can I pay the price? Can I give an accounting for this? But because of sin in our lives, because of that transaction, because of this in this origin story, Adam sinned and because of that we're all under this curse of sin we had friends over last night with two beautiful little boys this is a, a gal that grew up on our youth ministries they live in pennsylvania she and her husband and you know they the little girl one little girl's older and we known her for a while but i'm watching the two little boys and the one little boy his favorite tv network was our dog toby the toby tv channel 24 7 toby's on the pillow toby's under the chair Toby's hiding from me. Yes, he is, because Toby's 15, and he wants to take a nap. <laughs> and this little guy, he's very young and very verbal. He could talk, and he, he, he's falling around, and he wanted to make sure that Toby liked him and that he had done everything right. But you know what? He accidentally pulled Toby's tail. And Toby growled and ran and hid. But that's kind of how we are with God. We want to make sure that we're getting it all right, that we're going to pay the right price, that we're going to pass the credit check. And what we learn from Adam is that from day one, from the time we're little, we sin. We mess it all up. 
and we keep sinning. We are forever tainted. The origin story of us as God's people is that we are sinners and we don't get it right. And because it is perfection, because it is that way, just like in the Marvel movies, everything's different, right? We find out we're broken by sin. It doesn't get better. Avengers fans know what I just did right there. Those of you that are waiting for Captain Marvel to come out, nerds unite. You know what I meant. Okay. For everybody else, the idea that the whole world is different, everything changes because of our sin. We can't stand before a holy God. We can't get it right. We want to make sure we're just always trying to make sure God's happy with us. We think if we work really hard, if we get it all together, that God's going to be the God that loves us. And instead of that, we know that sin kills us, not just with God, but on the inside. That's why people are desperate on Valentine's Day. If you want to know if sin is real, that's why apps like Tinder exist. But not only exist, but make millions of dollars. Because people are hungry to fill that hole in their heart. Whether it's with that or with something else or with, with people's applause, with people telling them how great they are, like those Judaizers, like the Pharisees. But deep down inside, when we close our eyes and lay down at night, we're deeply angry on the inside because we know that we aren't perfect. We know that we're sinful. We mess it up. We feel guilty. And the motives of our heart, when we think about our lives and what we do, we know it's a mess. We're stuck. But what Paul wants us to know is that there's a covenant of grace. There's a covenant of grace. And that comes all the way back in that origin story in Genesis chapter 3. That's what Paul's referencing here in Romans 5. And if you want to impress your friends and say, I'm a Presbyterian, I know God's word, you can tell them about something called the Proto-Evangelion. Fantastic. So we learned about this, right? Proto-Evangelion. And what that means is it's the pre-proclamation of the gospel. That's a fancy phrase that says, back at the beginning, God said, but I'm going to send a Savior. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, or if you have access to YouTube, look up this clip from the Passion of the Christ where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is like not necessarily a biblical thing. This is a little license with the movie, but it's interesting. So Satan comes and tells Jesus when he's struggling in the shadow of the cross, he's going to walk to Calvary. And he says that Satan comes and says, you can't carry the burden. Nobody can. And as Satan's trying to convince Jesus that he can't do what God calls of him, the serpent appears from Satan and kind of slithers towards Jesus. Anybody remember this scene? And as Jesus resolves, he says, no, you know what, God, not my will, not what I desire, but what you desire be done. He stomps on the serpent and stands up. It's a powerful scene. Mel Gibson understood sin. He also understood that he needed God's grace, that he was a messed up guy. It's a powerful scene that really brings this passage that we're looking at today. Genesis 3.15, that backstory, Jesus presents there that pre-presentation of the gospel. He says, I will put enmity, that's not a good thing, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In fact, one who's born of humanity, one born of the woman, will crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. You may kill his body, but he's not going to die, die. In fact, he's going to live, live. He's going to rise again. 
And in fact, that's what God says. You're under that covenant of works and you can't get it right, but don't worry. One is going to stand in your place. His credit is going to run the credit check for you. He is going to fill your account. He is going to pay the price. And Jesus Christ does that. And he is reconciling us before a holy God. Because he can do what we can't. That's one of those doctoral conduits, the wise in the Bible. Christ becomes the second, the new Adam. A new covenant of grace, sealed in his blood. That's what we say at the Lord's table every time we have the Lord's Supper. That's what Christ declared to his disciples. I've come that there's a new covenant. I'm adding a new cup. Moses had these cups. He had the law. The law condemns you. I'm adding grace, and it's going to change everything. And if you want to live, live, though you would die, die. You will be born again. And you're still going to be a sinner. You're still going to be a mess. But now you will have the ability in me to overcome your sin. And you're not going to get it right, but you have the power to grow more like Jesus. We call that, as we saw, sanctification. The born again in Christ, we must follow. We know he's the only one. He can pay the price, and we follow after him in that covenant of grace. It's a gift And you see, it's an interesting gift because Jesus doesn't just get us back to square one. Jesus is not a spiritual debt relief program. You know, in two years, it'll all be okay. Jesus doesn't just pay our debts. He actually fills our spiritual bank account to overflowing. You are a a millionaire spiritually in Jesus Though your body will not live forever, in Christ you have redemption. He's not just fire insurance for the future, and he's not just debt relief for the past. He is everything for your presence. And what does that mean? What does that change? First of all, that guilt and pain and that that hunger, that deep desire, that dying inside that we feel we don't have to have that overwhelm us. It doesn't mean it it doesn't hurt sometimes, but spiritually in Christ, our life is rags to riches. Whatever happens, we have power in Christ that we can stand before it and we can stand alongside him. We are beyond condemnation. And that's what we need to understand. That life, life in Christ means that we are able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or what we think because the power at work, the life at work, the spiritual renewal The regeneration in us, it changes everything. And because it changes us, look what we believe. Look at what it says there from Ephesians chapter 3. Then we want to give him all glory throughout all generations in the church. Christ Jesus gets all of it forever and ever. Amen. What's the church? We're the church. Pastor Dan Page, the people down at Cornerstone, down the street, they're the church. The people over at Riverwood, they're the church. Over at Redemption, at Christ Community Chapel, down at, you know, Parkside Church in Green or or out at the, you know, Parkside Megaplex, wherever, whatever that town is where that is. I can't remember the name of that one, but any place where the fullness of God's word is preached and the people respond, we are the church. And we have life. And we have satisfaction in Christ. We are set free 
Our bank accounts are full. And the question today is, are we going to live in the shadow of that hunger, that guilt, and that pain? Or are we going to choose in the power of Christ at work in us to live in the shadow of the cross and of redemption? Does your new life in Christ matter more than your past, your hungers, and all those things that come so naturally? Are you willing to choose to say, Christ, give me the power, I want to change my life? Or you want to keep doing what you're doing? Because you have a new life inside out in Jesus. Up on the screen there, you're going to see real quick. You see that picture? That is one of my favorite basketball players. They're having the NBA All-Star Weekend in Charlotte. And that's Charlotte Hornets great Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. Does anybody remember him? At five foot three, he was the shortest guy to ever start for a full season in the NBA. Just slightly shorter than Nate Tiny Archibald. I was talking to some of you guys about that if you're a basketball fan. Muggsy Bogues had a very successful NBA career, and he was driven because of his short stature to prove that he could play professional basketball. And friends, if you didn't know that, I'll tell you, as somebody who played in AAU in different worlds, I was short at 6'4", 6'5". To play like that at 5'3 is amazing. Amazing. But what you might not know about Muggsy Bogues is he had a brother named Chucky and he had a sister and they had a mom and a dad and their dad was a lifelong addict and their brother Chucky got pulled into it. It was drugs, it was alcohol, they were in and out of prison, both of them and Tyrone Muggsy Bogues said, I'm going to work harder, I'm going I'm to beat this, I'm going to get out of it and he fought hard and he had a real faith in Jesus and he battled, he battled, he said, you know what, I'm not going to get pulled into the, the tough life and the the slums of Baltimore where he grew up, and he worked so hard, and as he went on in his career, he realized he didn't have it all together. His marriage fell apart. His life fell apart. And he was all alone, and he went home to visit his mother, and she said, your brother's going to die if you don't help. So his brother Chucky, who had been in and out of prison, had done so much drugs and alcohol, he couldn't even talk straight, Muggsy took him with him, and he was working for the Hornets organization. He retired. His brother lived him a few years while he played, and then he became an executive with the Hornets. And his brother has stayed there with him all these years. And as his brother got sober, he found out that he needed his brother as much as his brother needed him. His brother has been sober for years now, though he's not perfect. But they live together in... Tyrone Muggsy Bogues got a second chance at life. He remarried his wife after 15 years of getting his own life together. He has a great relationship with his family, and he has a brother that still lives next door to him. What made the difference? What made the difference was he says he understood that his life in Christ was all he needed, and all the success and all the fame and all the fortune, it didn't satisfy him. And in fact, his desire for more and more of that, he had to decide one day that he was his own worst enemy. It didn't satisfy him. And when he found a satisfaction in who Christ had made him to be, he was able to love and to not only improve his life, but he was able to love and to care for his brother and for others as well. I think there's a lesson for us as the church. That God calls us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our helpless, helplessness, to live a new life 
A new life now, not just a life to come, not just a freedom from the past, but hope and purpose in the present. Does your new life, how you live, is it about Christ and does it matter more? Do you have hope? Do you have joy? Do you have purpose? More than stuff, more than self-justification to show that you're number one. Every day, we're called to lay down our lives, friends. And that's what God's calling you to. In every simple transaction, as we're going to see in Lent, God is calling us not to be just emotionally, oh, in the moment, I'm going to do this, and not to be so completely, well, you know what, I'm going to get it all perfect. That's what Jesus has already done. And in knowing that Jesus has set us free, well, we understand that the love that God calls us to is not a maximum emotion, it's a maximum commitment. It's not a Valentine's Day, quick hit, one night date. It's not what it's about. It's about belonging to a God that loved you so much that he didn't just pay your debt. He filled your bank accounts to overflowing. And like Tyrone Muggsy Bokes had to learn, what are you going to do with all that God has entrusted to you? Are you going to find your contentment in God? Are you going to love him? Are you going to be committed to him so that everything you have and all you are is shared in loving and caring for your brothers and sisters? That's what it means to know. What it, that's what it means to belong to Jesus and to know true contentment in him and to no longer be your own worst enemy. And that's the life that God calls us to, to be committed to loving and to serving others. And knowing that we are welcomed and accepted by him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that for us as a church and as individuals in our lives, that we would know that from the very beginning, the story of our, our whole world was sin and brokenness. But you didn't leave us there. And in fact, redemption and restoration, that, that reconciliation, you're going to come again and restore all things. And that while we're broken in sin... From the very beginning, you gave us hope in Jesus. And God's word, even if we didn't know that. From the very beginning, you brought us that hope in Jesus that he would crush sin and death, that we would no longer die, die, that we would live, that we would have new heavens, new earth, that one day we will be restored physically, spiritually, emotionally. We'll be here in the new heavens and the new earth. And right now that in the power of Christ, our bank accounts are full. We can live for something more than ourselves. And in fact, when we do that, we find the contentment. We find the hope. We find the joy that we desperately seek everywhere else. It's not about five easy steps. It's not about what we feel in a given day. It's about a lifelong commitment to walk along with you. And that you will fill all the gaps. You will meet all that we need. And, and that in that, we can have fullness in our relationships, in our marriages, in our lives, in our friendships. Not because we're perfect, but because you are and you were and you always will be. So God, take a hold of us and show us where in every simple transaction every day, we can be content and fulfilled in you. That we can let go of our need to prove ourselves and justify ourselves. And that we can love and serve our brothers and sisters all around us. Everyone that we encounter every day needs to know that there's a love and a joy from resting in you. God, whatever we're doing with this day, draw us into your love. Give us an abundance of that hope, of that peace and that joy of belonging to you that we can overcome the sin and death and darkness 
As long as we walk alongside you, I pray for all of us in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen.